Hello, I'm Professor Danielle George. Since its inception, the capitalist model has profited by taking resources from the earth and squeezing all it can from its workforce and customer base. Short-term gains are prioritised over long-term values, putting profits above people, and leading to inequality, exploitation and the destruction of our planet. But does it have to be this way? Well, today I'm joined by a panel of experts who might argue that it doesn't. We're going to discuss social purpose, a growing trend among some businesses whose enduring reason for being is to create a better world in addition to making a profit. Together, we'll discuss how business growth and positive social impact can create a better, safer world for all. And joining me for today's discussion are Dr. Anna Barford, Senior Research Associate at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership at the University of Cambridge. Anna is also a Prince of Wales Research Fellow who recently authored a report on the business and social benefits of paying the living wage. Professor Subi Rangan, Professor of Strategy and Management at INSEAD, the world's largest and most global graduate school of business. Subi studies and teaches how firms and other economic actors may better integrate performance and progress. And Thomas Tune Anderson, Chairperson of Lloyd's Register Foundation and Lloyd's Register Group Services. Thomas has nearly 40 years experience in the maritime and energy sector and has a special interest in sustainable energy solutions. We'll also hear later on from Peter Holbrook, Chief Executive of Social Enterprise UK, Ben Greensmith, UK and Ireland Managing Director of Tony's Chocolonely, and Guy Shanchief, Co-Founder and Managing Director of the award-winning social purpose business Bambino Mio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Global Safety Podcast. Um, Anna, I'm going to start with you, but I actually want to ask you all of this. What does social purpose mean to you? Because I can't seem to find a universal definition of social purpose. I think for me, having a social purpose is to really um, see businesses um, considering their impact on society. And when we're thinking about society, I don't, don't just mean the kind of the immediate people who um, live in the neighborhood, maybe where they're operating or where they're employing people, which is important. Um, but to extend that kind of throughout value chains and think more globally about the impact that they're having, and then to endeavor to make sure that the impact they're having is a positive one rather than a negative one. You already gave us a very um, stark introduction about a lot of the, the issues that, um, you know, historically and, and today, um, businesses have caused um, and continue to cause in many different contexts. So it's really stepping back and seeing, thinking, you know, how can businesses, instead of um, risking causing damage, actually make a positive contribution? Um, Thomas, do you agree with Anna? Yeah, I, I agree. When you talk about social purpose, they are two important words. But for me, the key word is is purpose. And I believe that companies over time, those who have actually had a clear purpose, most of them have also had to a larger or stronger degree, a social angle to that. If I was to define what a company's purpose is, it is really saying, what is the global challenge that the world is facing, which you as a company want to be part of solving? Which, of course, means that if you are in that kind of environment, yeah, then it automatically becomes some of the social things you wish to solve. And that is could be the climate, uh, 
It could be inequality, uh, or it should probably be a combination of all of these things here, uh, the footprint you have in the market. And I really feel that over the last few years that that whole social angle to what companies are doing has become much more in the forefront. Subi, can you give us your definition of, of social purpose? And then also just try and give us some examples of the, the sort of organizations that would be classed as social purpose businesses as well. You know, I, when we created something that we today call an economy, and this has been in the making a thousand years, but in the last 200 years is when we kind of formalized and created something that we call an economy. The aim of this economy by the 20th century had become, um, uh, had converged around this idea called output. And what we expected from a good economy was output. And this output we measured as something we call GDP or wealth. And today we have so much output, nearly a hundred trillion dollars. So it has worked. We succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. However, today we realize that this output may have come at the cost of something we value even more, namely outcomes. And we're shifting, we're recentering, if you will, the economy away from just output to outcomes. So this is one way to view what, what does social purpose mean? It means recentering on outcomes, not only on output. Thanks, Subi. Um, Anna, so as well as having positive social impact at their core, how important is it that a business that describes itself as a social purpose business does those sort of day-to-day things really well, sort of how they treat their staff? I think it's absolutely essential. I think if we're thinking about the, the impact that a business has, like I said, you know, it can have an impact kind of directly on its um, direct employees, on the um, on the kind of supply chain, and also on the um, the wider consumer base, um, and and hopefully on people kind of beyond beyond that as well. But the people who are engaging most closely with that business are the people who are working there day in, day out, week in, week out. So if you can't get it right for those people, then how, how much are you really caring about your social purpose and how much are you really taking care of um, of that social responsibility? What we found with our research was that actually there's, there's a business case as well. Um, so while treating your employees very well, making sure that they're well paid, which is our focus, but kind of obviously going by, beyond that as well, allowing worker rights, allowing workers to express their needs and use their voice to unionize, um, making sure that of course, like health and safety is in place, that there's no um, slavery in any supply chains, like all these things are so, so important. Um, and if collectively we do them, brilliant. But look, looking at wages, um, we found that actually paying, paying your work as well um, is good for them, but it's also good for the business. Well, I think we've, um, we've set the, the landscape really well there. Thanks, everyone. A really good introduction. Good definitions, I think, of, of social purpose. Um, now we're going to hear from a company who just won Brand of the Year at the 2022 Purpose Awards. Reusable nappy company Bambino Mio were up against ITV in the final for the prize, which recognises companies that use creative ideas successfully to further positive causes. Here is Guy Shanshif, co-founder and managing director, to tell us more. We manufacture reusable nappies and associated products. That includes training pants, swim nappies, uh, and other products that that go along with the nappies. Uh, We're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year, 
having started the business um, back in 1997 um, in the front room of our terraced house in the centre of Northampton. I mean, everybody talks nowadays about purpose-driven businesses, and I think, I mean, I did a business studies degree in the 80s, and and the purpose of a business was to make money. That That's what we were taught at that time, and, and it was it was all about profit. Um, I think the world's moved on dramatically since then, and and we know that, that, that the stronger the purpose, the stronger the reasons why, why your business exists, um, the more successful a business is. I genuinely think that we were a purpose-driven business before that became a buzzword, before we really knew what that was, because when we set out... We set out a mission statement when we started to um, to make reusable nappies commercially acceptable worldwide. And the benefits probably are more obvious now than, than they've ever been. There's the fact that we throw away 90 billion disposable nappies in the world each year. Um, the fact that disposables use 98% more raw materials. Um, they cost local councils £140 million a year to get rid of. It's, it's obvious the benefits, reducing waste, not using so many raw materials and less CO2. Um, so all the things that are, input, that are quite rightly important to everybody and, and obviously reducing single-use plastics. I was lucky enough to go to a talk by Paul Polman, the ex-head of Unilever, and he talked about you could put all the governments and NGOs in a room together, but it's only really business and a business proposition that is going to sort out a lot of the issues that we have. We're a good example of that in terms of in terms of a business that was set up. We saw a problem. We saw a problem that that, that needed addressing. And actually, there were so many reasons why people should use reusables. But it was there was a, a sort of a task there to persuade people to to ensure people realised all the benefits because we were working against massive marketing campaigns from the disposable companies. It's really exciting. I mean, obviously, the, the, the world is moving in, in a direction that's where, where reusable nappies um, will, hopefully become, will hopefully become the norm, where more people will certainly adopt it. We, have, we certainly have more and more people all the time coming to the category. We were, we were lucky enough to win, um, to win Brand of the Year at the Purpose Awards last week, which was, which was brilliant, really, because we were up against some incredibly big, big brands, and there were only two of us shortlisted for it, which was ourselves and ITV, um, and um, and we won, which was which was great. What a great success story there. I mean, they're making such a difference, aren't they? That was Guy Shanshif from reusable nappy company Bambino Mio. And I would say that's definitely a, a social purpose business. Um, Anna, do you think that social purpose is this sort of growing movement? And if so, what do you think is driving it? I actually think, sadly, um, COVID-19 has kind of spurred us um, a bit further on with that because um, because of the shocks, um, because of the employment impacts, because of that sense of, you know, we really need to look after each other and um, take care of each other. And, you know, there's been more, we've seen more social protection coming up in certain countries, um, more, quite a strong state response and a strong business response as well um, to, to that crisis. Um, so I think, I think that's that's one thing that's really pushed it forwards. I think now, obviously, we're facing this um, huge rises in poverty, um, including the the kind of the impacts of um, rising inflation and increased cost of living. And like, at least in the UK context, this is on the back of 
a decade of austerity um, from 2010 to 2020, um, which also kind of massively increased inequality in the country. So we were already in a bad place even before COVID hit. Sadly, I think that kind of that combination of different crises has led to huge increases in poverty, but it's also um, leading us to need to respond to it. And that it's kind of it's driven the urgency of that up. It needed doing anyway, um, but it's kind of pushed it higher up the agenda on a busy agenda where there's lots of things competing. Hopefully there's something that happens where like, where we build momentum and when business, because businesses want to do well and they want to be seen to be doing well as well. So I think as businesses are increasingly making commitments in the space and in a- acting on those commitments, hopefully that will kind of lead to a certain momentum where we create new standards and new norms where social issues are really taken seriously and issues of poverty, issues of inequality and other social issues are really kind of seen as like a core interest um, of business and seen as seen as something they should really focus on. Mm. It, it does feel like the climate crisis, inequality, the financial crisis, you know, all of these are drivers, aren't they, for, for the social purpose movement. And I think that that's really important. Subi, do you think consumers are demanding a more socially responsible approach from businesses? I'd say so. I mean, I think if you take the nappies example, I would imagine that adoption is a huge challenge. And if you don't have willing consumers to be mature about their consumption choices um, and everyone turns to the most convenient, cheapest, then I think this is going to be an uphill slog. So um, I think consumers are moving finally. Thankfully, investors have moved much more and the courts, the law has moved much more. But the biggest surprise to me uh, between consumers, employees, and uh, investors is the extent to which investors have moved. And that's what's also changed the whole debate for why companies need to rethink their business model and how they do things. Um, don't forget, we are now richer than we've ever been on average. The world per capita GDP is 11,000 on mean average, not median. But no matter almost where we look, people are richer today than they were 30 years ago. And so much of social purpose is income elastic. The environment, concern for others, our own health care, investment in security, education, clean water, etc. Many of these things have a hugely income elastic um, uh, character to them. And uh, it's it's no surprise that we're arriving uh, at this stage. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you think, Subi, do you think um, businesses can make the world a better place? You know, we heard from Guy from the Nappy Compi- Company earlier. Um, he touched on this a bit. Are businesses better placed than charities and NGOs and governments to create a better world? I, I'd say yes, for the following reasons. To do something and do it well, you need at least two things. You need competence and you need resources. Those are the minimum. The third very important thing is you need the motivation to do it. Now, business relative to um, governments may have greater competence in doing many of these things. Take reskilling employees or youth unemployment. Business may be more suited, so they may have the competence And when it comes to producing vaccines or when it comes to producing this nappy and the business model to go with that, surely business seems to have um, an advantage on competence. 
relative to NGOs or other charities, business has a resource sustainable business model. Government can tax, but philanthropies and uh, others depend on somebody's charity and willingness to donate or make a grant. Um, so on both of those, I think business may be better off. But the most important thing, I think, is what Thomas had said. Business is often the source of the problem. It's not like these problems just happen from some meteor strike and, you know, this is nobody's at fault. No, business creates demand with its marketing. Business creates all kinds of um, shocks to the environment and to employment. They can create technology, adopt technology. So business also has a moral obligation that if they are the primary source, more than I think I would guess 70, 80% of all resources in the world are allocated by businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lloyd's Register Foundation, Thomas, is working on something called a value sheet. So what is that and why is it important? So I think any company needs to try and define where, where can it be in the forefront? Where can it actually push? Every company needs to define where they can be unique in adding to a social purpose over and beyond what a lot of other companies can do, because that is the uniqueness uh, of what they do. So back to the value sheet. And, and for me, that is some, some way for a company to try and focus in around the long-term value creation rather than the short-term profit. And the value sheet then for each company becomes, how do you measure some of these things? How do you articulate the aspirations that you do? And it's so important not just to say that in five years' time I will do this or I will do that because then that ends up being greenwashing or whatever you want to call it. You need to actually be able to articulate what are the steps you do along the way. And, and, and an element, an example of something that could go into a value sheet would be if you were looking at some of your uh, climate changes and so on, that would be science-based targets. I.e., You go out and say, I will be measured on these things, on a science-based thing, which is an international standards. And in year two, I will have reached this. And in year three, I will have reached this and so on. So the value sheet becomes the, an individual company's unique value sheet for how it wants to achieve these things. But it becomes a very useful tool towards investors. And I have a little bit of an issue with many of the big uh, investors today who come out and say, we want this, we want that, we want this, we want that. But when you then actually ask them to show up at an AGM, you know, they're complaining about the short-term profit not being good enough. Because I, I believe in the long-term value creation. I believe that long-term value creation is better than the sum of the short-term profits. But you need to have the courage to have the horizon to allow things, because if you want to make long-term value creation, you need to invest. And that would probably have a, a detrimental impact on the short-term profit for the next few years. But if you really want to make these changes, yet you need to invest. And this is, I think, a, a language, a tool that you can use with your investors to force them to actually accept the investments you do and the sacrifice it has on the short-term profit 
in order to get to the long-term value. Okay, let's hear from another social purpose business. Let's hear from Ben Greensmith. He's the UK and Ireland Managing Director of Tony's Chocolate Only, a chocolate company that exists to make chocolate free of modern slavery and child labour. Most of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa and there you've got about two and a half million farms uh, producing most of the world's cocoa and they tend to be kind of small uh, family operations, maybe two or three football pitches. On one hand, you've got these millions of farmers, so two and a half million, million farms. On the other side, you've got billions of consumers who love eating chocolate and don't really think about where it comes from. And in the middle, you've got um, a handful of massive chocolate companies and, and producers. And sadly, they keep the price of cocoa as low as possible so they can make as much money as possible. And that leads to, to big structural problems. So um, got one and a half million children who are working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa because their parents are paid so little that they have to take their kids out, of, uh, basically out of school and use them on their farms um, because they can't afford hired labour. And then you've got a minimum of 30,000 who are effectively kept in modern day slavery. Um, and it's the root cause of all of this is poverty. Sixteen years ago, back in 2005, there were three Dutch journalists in the Netherlands and they, they, they had a TV programme called Curing Jenst van Vader, which means food unwrapped. And one of these journalists was a, was a chap called Turn, Turn van der Kirken, and the international translation for Turn is Tony. A very long story short, he, he tried to speak to all the big chocolate companies. He flew out to Nestle's headquarters in Lake Geneva uh, and no one would talk to him. And when they did, they they basically said, look, we can't do anything about it. It's too complicated. Off the back of it, Tony made a few thousand bars, which were in a bright red wrapper um, as a bit of a PR stunt. And because of the coverage and the hype, they sold out in, in, a, matter of, in a matter of hours. But it was at that stage that we took the decision that look, if we're really serious about changing the chocolate industry, the best way isn't through a PR stunt or or, you know, I don't know, becoming an NGO or a charity, the best way is to actually show that there is a different way to make delicious chocolate that doesn't involve exploiting West African, African communities. We are a profit-making business, not a charity, and that's... That's really important because we have to show and we have to demonstrate to the big chocolate companies that our model is scalable. We've developed a model where we have a fully traceable supply chain. So our, our cocoa can be s separated anyway through the value chain that enables us to, to have full traceability and therefore take 100% responsibility for, for the conditions at the beginning of the value chain. So our model, um, we have to show that what we're doing is it can be commercially successful. I have never had such a, a motivated team as, 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 as I do in the UK my, my, and, and, and across Tony's as well. We have a really high level of commitment and engagement within the business, way higher than the, 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 than the industry average. 
we definitely see this kind of shift as well. I've seen it more and more with the younger generation who, who gen- really seem to care about where they work and don't just want to make money for a, a faceless shareholder in a, an office. People really are, really are um, excited to, to come and work at Tony's. It's fantastic, but at the same time, it's 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 still sad that we have to keep doing what we're doing because these problems shouldn't exist. But um, only by having the best people and that strong mission do we stand a chance of really changing the industry. And that, you know, that's, that's really exciting. I, I love coming to work thinking that we're changing things and that we can change things. In 16 years, we've grown to the number one chocolate brand in, 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 in the Netherlands. And, and that's pretty crazy. So if we can do that there, then we can do that in this country as well. What an interesting story. I love that chocolate. And, and I love that it's got this sort of super serious mission and it's done in such a fun way as well. Thanks to Ben Greensmith from Tony's Chocolate Only for that. Um, Subi, I want to come to you first because um, I feel we need to talk about profit, I think. Can societally orientated businesses be as profitable as traditional businesses? I feel like societal and social impact always comes at some sort of at the cost of profit. And I just want to get it out there. Is profit a dirty word? Not at all. The point is firstly, how you make money. And secondly, how much money you make. And yes, there is always a shortcut by which you can save a buck or make a buck. And that's where we need maturity. Um, from business to say there is a cost of capital, how much more do we need to make than the cost of capital? And if we end up saying the maximum, then infinity is the limit. Um, If we're more mature, then there is almost always a sacrifice, at least in the short run and maybe in the long run. If you want to pay your employees a living wage, that I think is a durable sacrifice. And principle number one should be fairness not profit maximization or um, uh, wage minimization or so on. And these are choices. These are not economic decisions. These are moral choices. And we have great theories of decision-making. We do not have great theories of moral choices. And we need to educate business leaders on character, not only on competence. And that's where business education, I think, needs to go. I hope it's going but um, I wish it would go faster. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> Thanks, Suvi. Um, Thomas, do you think in order to survive as a business in the future, businesses are going to have to start acting in a more responsible way because of those market forces? I think the short answer is yes. I think uh, we are seeing that a lot of companies who engage in this uh, are as profitable, if not more profitable uh, than, than, than others. Um, and your ability to attract staff and so on, you know, is there. And if you don't do it, you don't get the best people in the world. And then in, 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 in the even medium term, not even the short term, but in the medium term, you you, you get better value creation. So I, I think there is both the issue that you morally have to do it, which I think is an acceptable reason in its own right. But I, 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 I strongly believe that if you do it right, your long-term value creation will be better than the sum of the short-term profits. Um, Anna, we, we heard from Ben Greensmith there just talking about having happy, committed staff. 
Is there an argument that socially purposeful companies can attract better staff and can they get a higher quality work from their staff because when people have more meaningful jobs, they're more motivated? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so so from, from the research that we did, um, there's, there's quite a few benefits um, to the workforce. Um, like I mentioned before, you know, there's less, um, less overwork. Um, and if we're talking about the social purpose being partly paying proper wages, um, living wages or above to, to staff, um, then you know, people feel valued and appreciated. Um, and, you know, like their employer kind of cares about their lives beyond their work. That's really important. Um, think about um, your your, be- your favorite boss that you've had um, or your worst boss that you've had and how how motivated or, or demotivated you might have felt at certain moments in during during that job and um, you know having having a good relationship where you feel like your your work is appreciated and valued um, and that you're treated well um, makes an, an enormous difference to how you feel about the work that you're doing yeah yeah I get I, I get there's a case for for the moral side of it that it's really clear but what's the business case for it so there's um there's questions about retention um you're um there's an argument that you're more likely to retain your staff which means you retain the skills that they have um the know-how the kind of institutional knowledge um, will stay which means you spend less time recruiting um less time training up new people um all all that side of things um there's also a case around sick days people who properly paid tend to take fewer sick days because um, probably because they're less stressed um, and probably because they're able to look after themselves better because they're because they're not living in poverty and we know that poverty has a lot of kind of negative side effects on on people in their lives um, so so absolutely um, the other thing I'd just say is um, one one thing I found quite helpful in my thinking about about value and profits um, and you know where the costs are with all this is um, something that the Shift Project have been working on. Caroline Reese at the Shift Project um, made this really nice point that was basically saying that the way that we do our accounting puts the cost of labor as a cost. But if we think about the cost of labor not as a a cost, but actually as an investment, then we can start thinking about um, the way that businesses are spending their money in a different way. And it won't seem like this kind of, you know, apparently negative thing on our kind of balance sheets. It will instead be like, you know, what are we putting back into our business um, to build it? Um, And the the reason historically... um, labor has been seen as a cost rather than an investment is because individual workers may well come and go but as a body of workers as a kind of a, as a collective you you'd be very unlucky to lose everyone on mass um so it can be seen as an investment and if we start thinking about labor as an investment then the case for living wages becomes much much clearer as well and maybe just one thing on this this point about yeah, profits. Um, so so PayPal um, raised the pay of their workers, and they actually and they saw their profits rise, and they actually attributed that rise in profits um, to, back to um, the increases that they've made in people's pay. So they. Wow. It's, there's no guarantee, um, but it's, the point is that it's not inevitably going to harm your business in some way. In fact, mm. it can do quite the opposite. But it's good to hear there is actually hard evidence for it as well. Um, okay, let's hear from Peter Holbrook from Social Enterprise UK, the national membership body for social enterprise. Social enterprises are a type of business with a social environmental mission, as Peter will now explain to us. Uh, A social enterprise is a business and fundamentally it is a business, but a business with a difference. So that difference is that rather than try and maximise profits for owners and shareholders, 
social businesses are governed and are constituted to drive social and environmental impact uh, alongside the need for profit and obviously sustainability, but principally they are motivated, designed and driven by a desire to make a positive difference in the world. I had a brilliant time running a social enterprise for 10 years. And one of the things that really frustrated me when I was running a social enterprise was the fact that the added value that social businesses create through the employment to maybe people with learning disabilities or people that have been serving time in prison or are distant from the labour market or recovering from mental ill health or addiction or anything like that, you know, that added value, that kind of social impact wasn't really traditionally uh, valued, uh, particularly when it came to public sector contracts and, and, and the like. It was very much a competitive process judged on price and quality alone. And I was um, uh, running a catering company, a, a catering social enterprise, and we were invited to tender for the, um, the delivery of catering services at Downing Street. And I took my army of you know, 50 or 60 uh, ex-offenders, people with learning disabilities, people that had all sorts of challenges in terms of work, um, and, and we delivered that contract. But we delivered that contract, you know, despite you know, kind of all of the odds being against us. So I set about deciding that the world needed some systemic and structural changes. And I decided to, uh, when I was invited to, to, to come Chief Executive at Social Enterprise UK and lead the fight for systemic and structural change, creating a, a environment where social enterprises can really thrive, grow, scale and achieve ever greater social benefit. It's an incredibly uh, diverse uh, and growing uh, quiet revolution. Uh, it's a movement, certainly, but there is this kind of new generation of entrepreneurs that don't actually just want to drive profit at any cost and actually are really thoughtful about not only the kind of m the moral crisis we're in in terms of our relationship between business and society, but actually is seeing a new emerging market where their businesses can really succeed through doing the right thing, there is a, a growing demand and a growing market, not just in terms of customers, but also employees, investors, actually by being an inclusive business, a sustainable business, an environmentally sound business, you can actually gain competitive advantage. And it's that commercial opportunity that I think is really powering the movement. Well, my, my vision for the future is, is that one day all businesses will, in effect, be characterised as social businesses. You know, even if they're not described, it will just become the way we do business. That value goes beyond purely looking at the economics and also looks at the social impacts and the environmental impacts. And we make informed decisions about who we work for, who we do business with, uh, who we invest in. And actually, we create a race to the top in terms of business responsibility rather than what we've seen over decades, which has come this race to the bottom. Thanks to, to Peter Holbrook there from Social Enterprise UK for that. Um, Subi, there are, there are many small and medium-sized enterprises that exist because they want to change things and that core purpose actually drives their business. But how do we get the corporate giants, those sort of multinationals who hold a lot of power, to genuinely clean up their act and become more of a force for good in the world? I think this is underway. That's the good news. There's Siemens, there's uh, uh, Tesla, etc. There's the whole car industry is finally electrifying. So 
big companies are really moving, Volvo, etc. Now, if we wanted all of the large firms to move in this direction, fundamental in my view is changing the paradigm. How do we think about the purpose of business, purpose of the economy? This means we need to change the education of business leaders, whether it is undergraduates, MBAs, or executives, um, because education is the only scalable way to send out a message where we can move in a coordinated en masse business. Otherwise, it's country by country, regulation by regulation, industry by industry. But if we can change the paradigm, we can change the people. If we can change the people and the paradigm, we can change the practice. And the key capability that we need to now um, upload into ourselves, both as consumers, also as producers, also as investors and employees, is we all need a greater capability for moral reasoning. We depend too much in the economy on um, prices and property rights. We need to also use moral reasoning, not only prudential reasoning. And this is possible. Then we need to kind of understand how to persuade others. Moral persuasion is a very hard thing. And finally, I don't think we have understood we all have social identities in our gender, nationality, industry, uh, the university we went to, but we do not have a good theory of moral identity until each of us reflects on what is my moral identity? What is my purpose? How do I relate to the bigger thing called the universe, the cosmos, my neighborhood, my family, my industry, or all interdependent? Until we have that moral identity which really eliminates that interdependence and engages us to act in that way, I think we keep looking for um, some messiah, some kind of inventor like Elon Musk to save the planet. But I think each one of us can save the planet and it cannot be centralized. We need all the diapers to be different and we need uh, things to be reusable and refilled and it's a, it's a tremendous uh, excitement. I'm optimistic for this 21st century, stating with the caveat, things get worse before they get better, but they will get better. <laughs> um, Anna, we've concentrated quite a lot in our discussion today around, around businesses and what businesses can do in this social purpose movement. What's the role for governments and international organisations? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, like, you know, echoing what Subi said, we've all got a role to play. Um, and in that sense, you know, business has got a role to play. Absolutely, governments and international organisations do as well. So I've, I've done quite a lot of work um, interviewing businesses, not just about living wages, but also about circular economy. Um, and I think there's a sense amongst those who are like the early movers that actually having more um, government regulation to back up what they're doing um, would be very, very helpful because they're kind of putting themselves out there. Um, we've heard the word courage a lot um, in this discussion, which I really like. And, you know, they are being courageous by kind of taking those first first steps and sticking their neck out and try trying to do something that is the right thing to do and figuring it out, um, figuring it out as they go. And for them, um, there's a strong feeling like, you know, if everyone else comes along too, firstly, it's going to be much easier because a lot of these um, things become easier when they become the norm. Um, and, and governments can ha help set that, do that norm setting and make that a legal requirement. So I think, I think governments have got an awful lot to do. Um, and hopefully the, um, hopefully the actions of some of these first mover businesses will actually give governments the courage that they need to feel like 
the business community will support us if we regulate to require the, this kind of um, higher standard of um, environmental or social um, behavior. In terms of international organizations, I think, um, so I've worked quite closely with some colleagues at the International Labour Organization, and I think one of the things they um, really offer us is some of that moral compass that Subi was just talking about. Um, you know, maybe morals are a very personal thing, but I think there's also kind of, you know, some really key standards that we should be meeting. Um, and a lot of people, you know, international organizations are very good at thinking those things through and setting some of those standards. And um, you know, that's absolutely what we should be aiming for. So there's a whole um, huge amount of work done around what decent work is and, and how to achieve it. So any business who's thinking, you know, what, what are my next steps? Um, that would be one place to go to think through what, what decent work means and how you can make sure that you're offering every single one of your employees a decent job. Plus, ideally, those people in the value chains as well, so that when you go forwards and you're setting new contracts um, with new suppliers, you can ensure that some of those standards of decent work are written into the contracts so that they, so you can have this cascading effect. And I think that's where we get even more leverage from these movements, where, where they're committing to their direct employees and making commitments to ensure that their value chains are um, really ethical as well. Okay, final question. Gosh, this has gone so quickly. Um, final question to you all. Um, I'd really love to know what your vision is for the future of business. What do you want the business landscape to look like in, say, 20 years time? Um, I think uh, and I hope that the business in itself has moved into the long-term value creation rather than the short-term profits. Uh, and my, my deep wish is that politicians starts accepting that business has a real role to play. I find that we are in right now in a world where there is a divergence between politicians and business, and that is to nobody's benefit. Excellent. Um, Anna, how about your vision for the future? Okay, so... Um Hopefully, we'll be uh, we're look, looking back and celebrating the great success of achieving the sustainable development goals. <laughs> that would be uh, that would be wonderful, um, which is an amazing ask because now we've got half the time left to um, to achieve them in um, than we originally had. So I would I would like to see um, really a strong sense of um, social purpose and social responsibility embedded within. Um, every single business um this is like my, <laughs> my dream list um and you know that would be backed up by um universal living wage policies which would exist in every single country um whereby the living wage wasn't the ceiling that businesses were aiming for but it was like the absolute minimum that you would ever be paid um, and i think i just think that would be um just an absolutely enormous contribution that businesses could make that would look great wouldn't it yeah thanks anna and subi well, I think um, I see the future of business on three levels, business, the leaders, and the educators. For business, my vision would be that every business is intentionally driving not only performance, but also progress. For leaders, my hope is that every leader is building not only a career, but also a contribution. And for educators, business educators, I hope that we will not only deepen competence, but also deep in character.
Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you all. I mean, that, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. It has been so great to talk to you all. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really, really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you, Subi Wangan, Anna Barford and Thomas Tune Anderson. And thanks also to Peter Holbrook, Guy Shansheaf and Ben Greensmith, who we also heard from today. And of course, thank you for listening. Join us next time. Remember to follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.